Hi, I'm Charles Evans, music director of the Long Bay Symphony here in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, for another installment of our series, Speaking of the Arts. Happy New Year to everyone out there, and I'm pleased to say that uh, with the start of 2021, we're actually going to be back in, act, uh, in action, uh, doing concerts, small concerts, once a month. Our first one will be January 31st on Sunday at First Presbyterian Church in Myrtle Beach. So, and just so you know, that will be live streamed with the current conditions. Uh, we are staying with that. Hopefully in the near future, we'll be back to live performances and back to normal after a while. Uh, but for this first installment of the new year, uh, since it precedes any discussion about these upcoming concerts I just mentioned, I thought it might be nice to just talk a little bit about the language of music. I guess I was inspired somewhat by rereading of the little Copeland uh, primer, the uh, uh, what to listen for in music. And I thought a lot about what, uh, what are the audiences listening to? I know there are a lot of people with uh, varied backgrounds and some people are very uh, steeped in the classical style and maybe are performers themselves and then others who just come because they love it. And frankly, and I'm biased, but what's not to love about uh, listening to a symphony orchestra? I mean, you've got a world of sound there that's well beyond what you hear in popular music. I always make the analogy. I mean, we all read the papers in some way, shape or form, maybe the, the comics, uh, but, then you, you pick up a novel. It's a different level of involvement. So I think it's very easy just to bask in this, uh, what Copeland called the, the sensual uh, reception of music. It's maybe we should, this day and age, call it sensory. But you just come in and enjoy the sound for its, for its own sake, uh, not really thinking about the details of it too much. And I think that that's, you know, that's perfectly fine, but I think that also leads to the notion of, um, I guess the, the equation that has, has concerned me over the years is that, uh, you know, comfortableness and beauty equals greatness. So there are people who really enjoy uh, listening to Brahms or Beethoven or so on. And the, yet they, when they're confronted with some sounds that are different from what they're uh, accustomed to, they, um, they recoil a bit and say, well, that's not, that's not great music because it's ugly. Uh, and I think I'd like to make that comparison with other art forms, like in this, again, with literature. There's loads of great literature out there. It's not pretty. I mean, you think of, of the Charles Dickens novels, you think of uh, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. These are about very dark subjects, and yet they're riveting. You know, it's the kind of thing that's, uh, that, that really interests you. And I, I think there's a good equivalent in, in music. If you look at the visual arts, say a great painting like a Picasso work like Guernica, I mean, it's hardly a pretty piece, but it's, it's astounding in, in its power. And I think that's the important leap that you have to make with, with musical sounds uh, in order to have some level of comfort with, uh, with what the composer is presenting. And I think if, if you look at music uh, and what you receive, I think there are two obvious things that you really, uh, everyone is looking for and gathers uh, from music when they're listening to it. The first one everyone would say is the melody. You look for the melody, you're expecting to hear something that, that you can, you know, it's like the, the, the main actor speaking. You've got some vehicle to get you through the music. Now, on, on certain occasions, there is no melody, really, or perhaps it's too complex to 
to hum as a ditty or something like that, but it's still nonetheless there. Uh, the other thing is more visceral, and I think it's actually rather sub subconscious, and that is the rhythm. We don't understand necessarily the impact, but I would say that as for pop music, I mean, the things that keep uh, the interest and make, make pop tunes as popular as they are is the feel, is the groove they have. It's not so much a melodic thing, and for the most part, uh, let's say nowadays, I would say that, that rhythm generates uh, the music a lot more. But when I think of melody, I, I, it, it brings to mind this, uh, this programming idea that I think has been very uh, engaging, I, at least I hope so. And that's the idea of a theme and variations piece. And in fact, recently I'd done an entire concert of pieces that were themes with variations. And I, I like the idea because I think even the average concert goer can, can recognize the tune and then follow it along, maybe not always finding it, but to the best of their ability, following it along uh, through all these tremendous variations. So like one of the most famous is that Enigma variation. melody is subject, subjected to numerous variations. And I think it's the fact that you've got this alternating thirds, you've got a little idea within the full melody that can be manipulated well. I'm sure many people out there know the opening of Mozart's Symphony Number no. 40. That's the idea of uh, melodic recognition, uh, and certainly in terms of, um, of, of elements within the melody. I think the, the ultimate example of just getting down to bare bones, getting down to the seed, if you will, is um, Beethoven Fifth, of course. Because everything that happens in that movement is nothing but So you have nothing but those four notes. And I think in our earlier uh, episode on, uh, on Beethoven, our initial one, we talked about the idea that Beethoven has such a, an engaging sense of rhythm and pulse and, and just drive, I think, in general. That, that's that's uh, you know, the, the example that everyone would really cite with regard to that. Um, I think it's impossible to talk about melody without trying to include in that some idea of, of uh, scales and you know musical note patterns that we use in order to convey a melody. So I find it really fascinating and I, I'm sure many of you also do uh, how the change in simple mode from major to minor makes such a huge emotional difference. So for example if you just take If you take that and, and you can change the color just by going from a major to a minor scale, 
and somehow it completely alters our perception of the melody. And I, I think that's just so fascinating because it's just a different arrangement of notes and yet somehow uh, it changes everything. And I think it goes back to uh, the whole idea of building scale patterns and boy, I'll try to be brief on this one, but I think it's very interesting. Even the ancient Greeks, Aristotle and Plato talked about how different scale patterns, and this is where we basically had gotten our whole notion of uh, scales and, and ordering of, of notes in a scale from, from the Greeks. And they were very aware of the different effects that uh, different scale patterns had on say soldiers or scholars or something. And they were, they were very careful to uh, make comment about it and actually to an extent monitor uh, the uh, choices of music in, in certain instances. But essentially what we've got in our scales, and, and I think to an extent we need to call this Western music because there's certainly a lot of other varieties uh, and things that have been derived from what we have in nature, that's our own, only common language, is if you, if you, for example, very quickly, if you hear this low C, and uh, you hear that pitch by itself, but unaware to us, there are other elements vibrating inside of that. So that if you were to reach into the piano and put your finger down right in the middle of this string, so as to suppress this sound that you're hearing at its greatest amplitude, just get rid of it entirely, the next thing you would hear would be half the string vibrating and then so on and so forth. The string is vibrating in fourths and fifths and so on and so forth, all these mathematical proportions. So long story short, essentially, if you take all those notes that spread out over the series and you squish them down, you compact them to within an octave, you really end up with what I would call a nature scale, which is known as a pentatonic scale. And it's common to folk cultures all over the world. It doesn't really have any tension. It's just, it's a vehicle for having, uh, you know, stepwise or scalar motion. The thing about it, it's also called a gap scale because the, there are some big leaps between say C, D, E and then to G. And of course we're looking at it with hindsight. Like we're looking at the keyboard the way, you know, it's already been formulated, but there are two gaps in this. And so what has happened uh, is that new notes were inserted in there, which happen to be the tension notes that drive our whole tonality. So added to the pentatonic scale, one, two, three, four, five, and here's the next octave. We add these notes, and I don't know any Western ears that wouldn't feel compelled for this to go to this because what we have is what's known as half steps. If you look at the keyboard, you have 12 of these half steps to, en to enable you to, to create scales starting at any pitch. So in this case, when we've added these two notes, they are only half steps and they pull towards resolution. So what we've ended up with is a seven note scale that provides this game of tension and relaxation or dissonance and resolving to consonants. And that's sort of been the whole game, particularly uh, early on in the, in the Roman Catholic Church when, when they um, 
had only the melody to deal with. There weren't chords or other things of that nature. So um, say for example, before we stripped it down to just two possible scales, major and minor, there are other uh, possible orders. Like if you just start on say a D and go up the white notes, it sounds sort of like minor, but not quite as dark. known as Dorian and you might recognize that the true form of the green sleeves is in Dorian mode and another one if you just move up to the next note to the E it creates a scale that has a strong pull back home from just above And that is a big part of, say, Spanish music. So all of these created different, different uh, moods and different sentiments, but somehow in the Baroque period, when we got down to talking about what we'll talk about in a minute, actual chords, vertical chords against uh, the, the melodic progression, uh, there was this idea of stripping it down to just or simplifying it, I suppose, just down to major and minor, probably because there was allowance for, for doctoring it with accidentals. We could always play around with things. Uh, and just before we um, you know, leave this, I would make a little mention of rhythm because, like I said, I think it's, it's less uh, readily perceived, but certainly absorbed more quickly than anything else, how the rhythm affects things. So if we go back to say, happy birthday, I mean, if you, you could slow it down and turn it into a different piece just by, you know, losing the tempo. And so on and so forth. You could even turn it into something else by creating a new meter. Let's say, I know it's already in three, but if we turn it into a, a fast three, like a waltz, and I think I'd made an arrangement of happy birthday on our, for our first, um, our first uh, Strauss on the Strand. So you could do. And so on and so forth. So the, the rhythm changes a lot of the whole character of a piece. Uh, but again, somewhat less, uh, less perceived, but rather felt. But I think at this point, you know, with the, with the obvious of the melody and harmony, uh, melody and rhythm out of the way, I think we, we come to the real great variable and the development uh, of a language, say, in Western music that uh, maybe gets to the heart of what I was discussing at the very beginning. Um, because once the Baroque came in and they decided, the Baroque period, a uh, real revolutionary period of re reanalyzing what was actually going on and wanting to have more emotion in the music. Uh, all of the separate lines that had been the thinking, uh, the counterpoint for centuries was stripped away and, and rethought in terms of, well, now what we're really doing, even though these are all independent lines, is we're creating sonorities at any given vertical moment. And so, uh, chords were born and uh, Baroque composers or performers were actually working off of, you know, lead sheets. So you, you basically had a keyboard player who was given numbers 
like chord changes, essentially, on a sheet, which made it clear that what we were doing was having a melody being supported by chords. And really chords are, I, I think, in essence, the basis, like how you, uh, and I was thinking about it earlier, I think it really is the case. What rhythm and melody are kind of like what's being served. That's the dish, you're having chicken or you're having something else. The chords are all of the seasonings uh, that are surrounding this basic idea, whatever the melodic idea is. You've got, you've got this uh, sense of uh, how it's being couched. And so first off, uh, just to explain it very simply, the simplest chords are triads and they're just three note chords. Elvis and many other uh, pop artists have made quite a career over the years out of just using basic chords like. And so you take, say, the first, third, and fifth degrees of the scale, you got a chord and you can build one on the next degree and so on. And so that's, that's been our common language. So you can kind of walk through the whole, uh, say a whole scale pattern uh, with, with just triads. And have that be the whole repertoire of what you use. Well, over time, what, what, you, what you end up with in terms of tonality as a language is greater ambiguity or greater um, variation of sound to create new things, new colors, and uh, instead of the direct, you know, having the chance to color that a little, be a little bit more subtle, but in the process over time, what has occurred is that it's all, it's all turned a little bit more gray and then the whole thing kind of falls apart. But if we, um, for example, if we want to strengthen, like you go through that whole sequence, the first uh, chord to involve more than just three notes, essentially, is the idea of not only a five chord pulling you back home, but if you add another note, and these incidentally are the two notes that were added to the scale, if we make a G7 chord, that's stronger to take us back. Well, then over time, that became more the norm to add for color purposes, and certainly jazz utilizes this quite a bit. You can add uh, a fourth note to every uh, regular triad and make it uh, sort of thicker and more colorful. So then the language becomes a little bit, a little bit more rich and colorful and certainly composers like Ravel and, and others have, have increased that. You can even, you can go up to 13s before you're back home uh, to the original note. So that, that created a big color uh, addition to the whole palette. But when you're playing this game of tonality of tension and resolution, and you might want to be able to create uh, lesser levels or, or maybe a little deception. So then in, in the case of this, what's known as a classic deceptive cadence is 
So instead of going where you expect, it goes elsewhere. And uh, you could even make that a little bit more, uh, sorry, you could do, and, and move various places. So toying with the idea of the half steps in these chords, you can sort of make the music move wherever you want, which is both good and bad, because what it created by the time you get to say Wagner, uh, you create an ambiguity that just makes the whole thing kind of collapse. The most famous example is uh, the prelude to Wagner's Tristan and Isolde, which has, um, by and large, there, there are three note chords and four note chords that are sound very normal, but it's the way they're moved to and from that is so critical. So for example, I'll just play this kind of sped up and truncated. This is the opening gest set of gestures in the prelude to Tristan and Isolde. hear all that chromatic, all those half steps sort of winnowing around, and that develops as a new idea. And then we get Wagner's express intent to kind of create this ambiguity. Uh, so just when you think you're going to resolve, it doesn't really completely resolve, it slips into something new. And this, this uh, was Wagner's sense of unending melody. So the whole thing, and this of course is, is the passion of love that he's trying to convey, this constant yearning. And he conveys that wonderfully. But in the process, the harmonic language is getting so stretched that it's kind of hard to think of going back and putting it back in the box, so to speak. So by the time you get to, say, Debussy, as an impressionistic composer, you get a very interesting sort of like experimentation to try something new. It's often been said that it's the Afternoon of a Fawn, which was written, like I believe, around 1896, something like that, uh, just before the turn of the century, uh, that that was the first experiment in, in modern music, in a new aesthetic. So he starts off with, of course, the fawn playing his pan pipes. So you've already got this odd sort of op uh, opposition of these two dissonant notes. So 
So it, you'll hear later that that becomes pretty tonal, but the first harmonic thing you hear at the beginning is this. So we went from a very ambiguous four note chord, very much like in the Wagner, to resolve it to this, which is a basically a nine chord. Then he goes on to harmonize this tune in, in several different ways. You have comes with a different harmonization. And the next time it comes with an even stronger harmonization, again, another dominant nine chord. So we talked about those chords, but he just lines one up against the other. You get this, which is a seventh chord, but then he just goes back and forth. No voice leading, no sense of, of how these things move, but just as an abstract sound. So he's just... So that dissonant sound actually becomes a static sound that he likes to play around with. Another great moment in this, just when you finish the first part, you go, and you, you come to a rest in B major. Uh, uh. And all of a sudden you get a brand new device that becomes a staple of Debussy. which is and then he repeats it at a different level so what what he's done is create a scale uh, that is nothing but whole steps and this is a, sort of a signature device of, of Debussy's so that you really created the maximum ambiguity. Uh, there's no sense of tension and resolution. It's just um, a straight set of, of notes. So he, he vacillates between going into these territories of using uh, whole tone scales and ambiguous resolutions, then into very, very strong tonality. I think then by the time you get not too much in the future, to the works of, say, Stravinsky, it becomes apparent that we're using, I guess I, I was thinking earlier the analogy, like taking an abandoned car, a car that was used to get uh, someone to the store and you go out their daily life, say it's by the side of the road and somebody has come and just taken parts and used those parts for completely different purposes. 
Uh, and that's kind of what happens with this sense of abstraction. Tonality in some way is still there, but uh, it's, 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 a, it's used, utilized for an abstract purpose. So the very famous opening of Stravinsky's ballet, The Rite of Spring, kind of illustrates that we're going with a melody. You hear the melody at the very beginning. It's nothing but a simple Russian folk ditty. It's a very simple short tune. And then all of a sudden, But the funny thing is, it has its own tonality, and it's innocent enough by itself, but when you butt it up against everything else that's being held on to, it gets, it gets pretty rich. Now when we get into the, uh, the dance of the adolescent girls, is another great example of this plastic use of tonal uh, tools, tonal elements. Uh, he creates this real riveting uh, syncopated accented section uh, and, and the sound uh, being very uh, foreboding. Just by taking simple devices, like here is an E major chord, and yet stuck on top of that would be an E flat seven chord each of which has a basic tonal function. This could go to this, but it doesn't. It's, it's, it's used for a completely different purpose to create a, a stack, a wall of sound. So it's just like a couple of car parts uh, stuck together in this, this pastiche. Uh, of sound, then he has this motive, which is similar to what you heard in the introduction, which is, you know, basically very simple pentatonic sound, but against it, it's again the C major. So it's so you get this conflict of two tonalities going on at the same time. So clearly what we've, we've lost is this sense of, you know, functional tonality and, and, and yet an incredible amount of new color. And I think that's the kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something that's very common if you think about movie scores, uh, certainly horror movies. These, these devices have been picked up on by film composers and uh, exploited quite a bit. And they, they're part of our subconscious musical language. But I think if, if you are aware of what's being manipulated and uh, kind of understand the game, uh, it becomes a little clearer what the composer uh, is, is trying to do. Now, another element that unfortunately we can't, um, 
we can't discuss very effectively here because uh, you know, I'm limited to just on the piano, is the idea of tone color. And as I mentioned at the outset, I think that's one of the main reasons people are interested in, in music, you know, symphonic music, because the tone colors and the range of sound, and, and particularly live acoustic real sound, uh, is just so rich. And uh, I, I personally think that's what most people come to hear when they want to hear a symphony orchestra. They want, the, they want the bells and whistles. I mean, the idea of hearing all those lush strings uh, augmented by all the woodwinds, everything from the piccolo all the way down to the contrabassoon, the, the dynamic brass, uh, full brass section with the power of that. And of course, you know, all of the variety of instruments and percussion and the harp, that's what it's all about. But it, it did take a long time for that to develop. Uh, if you think about back in the Renaissance period, uh, it really was, uh, most music was written to be played by whatever instruments were available. Very often, well, I think exclusively, I mean, the things were not uh, written down to be played for certain instruments. It was, uh, you know, pretty variable. I'd say toward the very end of the Renaissance, we began to get specific uh, requests, like this is written for these instruments. Then by the time you move into the Baroque, it becomes a great deal more specific, but the ensembles themselves are pretty variable. If you even think of, say offhand, something like <clears throat> the Brandenburg concertos, uh, they're all for different, uh, different types of ensembles. Uh, so there wasn't the degree of standardization, although the orchestra was, you know, certainly uh, getting solidified, the strings at any rate, and then the addition of various woodwinds. And it wasn't until the classical period uh, with Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven that the, the actual standard orchestra became the norm with uh, the set body of strings, although smaller than the huge romantic orchestra, but then the four woodwind instruments in pairs two flutes, two oboes, two clarinets, two bassoons, and then minimal brass, two horns usually, and trumpets, and then over time, even in Beethoven's life, uh, you know, adding of trombones, adding third and fourth horn, uh, then adding additional trumpets, uh, and then, then at that point, it becomes a whole different game. There's a very significant change by the time you get to the Romantic period uh, in which, uh, orchestration became an art in itself, basically what I'm talking about, the idea of, of tone color, uh, that there were books being written for the first time about, you know, specifically about orchestration. And Hector Berlioz, who wrote the Symphony Fantastique, uh, was famous for writing a, a treatise on instrumentation. And of course, he experimented quite a bit. He came up with things as odd as an octabase, which was a double bass, double that size. So it even went an octave lower. And if you look it up, you can see some, some pretty hilarious uh, demonstrations of that. And, and very often it takes two people to play it, one person on a, on a stool to finger the notes and another person to draw the bow. But he was trying to expand the sonic horizon, uh, everything from the lows to the highs and special effects and so on, all of which he put into his treatise. Then, of course, Richard Strauss, the very famous uh, late Romantic composer going into the 20th century, uh, did a treatise as well, as, as in addition 
Rimsky-Korsakov, the Russian composer. So the idea of writing specifically and getting specific colors from within the orchestra became an art in itself. I think if, uh, if I could recommend to you out there any sort of quick uh, demonstration of this, I think there's no better piece than Benjamin Britten's The Young Person's Guide to the Orchestra, uh, because it does this very thing in a theme and variations, uh, whereby the whole orchestra will play a theme, and then it gets, uh, it gets distributed to just the winds, just the brass, just the strings, just the percussion. And then at that point, there's a whole set of variations that feature individual instruments within uh, each family. So it goes from flute and piccolo to oboe to clarinet to bassoon and wanders on to the, the rest of the sections. Um, so it's, it's an excellent, uh, it's an excellent way to follow along the color changes as well as understanding the, uh, the melodic development in a theme and variations. So there's lots, uh, lots to talk about. Obviously these are, these are big fun topics to kind of wrap your head around. Uh, and the next one I think would be uh, next level of understanding would be how these melodic ideas I mentioned or the Beethoven five, how do, how do composers take these ideas and organize them into a long, in, in many cases, multi-movement piece? Uh, how, does, how does a composer sustain an idea? And how would you as a listener listen dynamically as opposed to passively? Again, just in, in a sensory way, you're listening, oh, that's great, and the brass are so beautiful and loud, but what's actually going on dramatically and technically in the piece. I think that makes for much more dynamic listening to understand what the composer has tried to convey in all of this. Uh, so maybe that's a topic for, uh, for a separate discussion, but I, I would urge you all uh, to uh, tune in. Uh, we have uh, ability for you to buy into our live stream and um, join us for that January 31st uh, performance. We've got some interesting uh, string material on it uh, by Grieg and Copeland and others. So we'd very much like to have you join us for that. And as we move ahead, I, I trust that we'll be able to turn those into live performances. So we look forward to, uh, to seeing you all at some point, those of you who are in the area or will be coming. And other than that, I look forward to having you join us for further speaking with the arts, speaking of the arts, excuse me, sessions, and uh, future Long Bay Symphony concerts. So all the best for the new year, and we will see you soon.